0: We're currently discussing the doctrine of sanctification, and more specifically, we've been discussing what John Murray called definitive sanctification, which is the fact that a person is truly changed when he's born again. He's not perfected, but he is radically different. Dr. Spencer, how would you like to proceed today?
1: Well, at the end of our session last week, we had just started to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 7 where the Apostle Paul speaks about our union with Christ in both his death and resurrection. And I want to begin by looking at that passage
0: some more. All right, let me read those verses again. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. I made the point last time that Paul
1: specifically says our old sinful nature no longer rules, we have been freed from sin. In fact, Paul says that our old self was crucified with Christ. It would be reasonable to conclude from the English translation of this verse by itself, which uses the past tense, that our sinful nature is completely gone at that point. Certainly when a person has been crucified, he no longer has any power to act in this world.
0: That's obvious, but the Bible as a whole clearly teaches that Christians are all still sinners. We all sin daily. Therefore, that can't be a correct understanding of that verse. We should never assume a meaning that contradicts what's clearly taught elsewhere.
1: No, we shouldn't. And there is no real conflict, because in the Greek, it doesn't say the crucifixion of our old nature is completed. The verb is an aorist indicative, which is a tense we don't have in English. It simply refers to an event happening, but it doesn't specify whether the event is completed or is continuing. So we can't make that determination from this verse alone. In this case, based on many other verses in the Bible, it's clear that the action of crucifying our old sinful nature is not yet complete.
0: Well, for example, Paul commands us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And that verse is only one of many examples
1: we could use to make the point that our sin is still with us and that we need to fight against it. The great Apostle Paul himself said in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12, quote, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me.
0: Well, certainly, given that the Apostle Paul said that he had not yet been perfected, it's a pretty clear indication that we aren't going to be perfected in this life either.
1: Yeah, that's a very clear indication. But getting back to Romans chapter 6, the aorist indicative does speak about an event that has either begun or has been completed. It is not speaking about something that will begin sometime in the future. And to say that we have started to crucify our old nature is still a very strong statement. Our sinful nature is still present, but it's hanging on the cross, so to speak. It is powerless to rule over us, which Paul makes even clearer as he goes on in that chapter. In verse 11, he commands us to, quote, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, unquote.
0: In other words, we're to recognize that our being dead to sin, but alive to God through our union with Jesus Christ, it's a reality. That's exactly
1: Paul's point. Now that we have been born again and united to Christ in his death, we are to count, or we could say consider, ourselves dead to sin. The Greek verb is a present imperative, so it is, as I said, a command. The Reverend P.G. Matthew wrote in his commentary on Romans that, quote, The first step in holiness is to consider ourselves dead with respect to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word used speaks of logical thinking. We must keep on considering, thinking, realizing, remembering, meditating, accounting, calculating, reasoning, and keeping before our minds the reality of our union with Christ in his death, burial,
0: and resurrection. And when Matthew says that realizing this truth about ourselves is the first step in holiness, it's probably good to remind our listeners of the quote you read last week. Earlier in his commentary on Romans, Matthew said, in Romans 6, Paul speaks about why believers should live holy lives and how they can do so in Christ. Holiness is the key to happiness. And he's completely right in that statement. Holiness is
1: the key to happiness. It's impossible for a child to be completely happy when he knows he has done something that displeases his father. There's a strain in the relationship. The father doesn't stop loving his child because he has sinned, but there is a problem that needs to be resolved. And so it is with us as God's children. In order to be truly happy, we have to be in a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that's only possible when we walk in holiness. And as Matthew stated, the first step on the road to holiness is to recognize the truth of the fact that as Christians, we are already dead to sin and alive to God because of our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. Sin cannot be the pattern of our life any longer.
0: In other words, the death and resurrection of Christ truly have efficacy in the life of the believer. It's not just symbolism. That's right. It's definitely not just symbolism.
1: John Murray wrote that, quote, As the death and resurrection are central in the whole process of redemptive accomplishment, so are they central in that by which sanctification itself is wrought in the hearts and lives of God's people, unquote. In other words, Christ's sacrificial death is both efficacious in paying the penalty for our sins, or we could say in paying the price necessary to redeem us, And it is also efficacious in the process of sanctification. The exact means by which it is efficacious is mysterious, but the scriptures are clear that it is. And the first step in this process is definitive sanctification. We have truly been changed. We died to sin and are now alive to God, meaning simply that we have a
0: desire and an ability to obey Him. And that's a wonderful beginning. And we could never bring about this change in ourselves. It's the work of God.
1: Very true. But then the process of sanctification continues. So we get to what Murray calls progressive sanctification. Right after telling us in verse 11 that we are to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, Paul then draws a wonderful conclusion in verse 12. He writes... Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires.
0: That's wonderful. Sin used to reign in our lives, but we're not to let that be true anymore. We don't have to obey sin. It's no longer our master. No, it isn't. We don't have to sin. We can have
1: victory over it. But it is still present. We still have sinful desires and Satan still brings temptations to fulfill those sinful desires. We were passive in our regeneration. We then responded in repentance and faith, but then we were again passive recipients of God's legal declaration that we are just and of His adopting us as His children. We were also passive recipients of God's grace in our definitive sanctification, but we are now to be actively involved in the process. Rev. Matthew says that verse 12 gives us the second step to holiness. We are not to let sin reign in our lives. In other words, we are not to give in and obey our sinful desires. An unregenerate person can only sin. He makes real choices, of course, but only between different kinds of sin. We, however, have the ability to say
0: no to sin. We should probably remind our listeners of the fact, which we've noted before, that God judges our attitudes and motives as well as our actions. So when you say that an unbeliever can only sin, you're not saying that an unregenerate person will never deny himself and do something that is outwardly unselfish and proper. But because his motivation will never be to obey and glorify God, it's still sin, even when he does so that's a good reminder. Unbelievers definitely behave in noble ways at
1: times, and some of them do so as a matter of routine. When an unbeliever denies temptation, for example, say he denies himself the indulgence of staying home from work and gets up and goes to work because he knows that it's better for his family, he is doing what is right and good. But his motive will be wrong. For example, his motive may simply be that he knows his marriage and family life will be more pleasant, In other words, while this motive is not terrible, it is ultimately selfish and centered on this life. That will always be true of even the most noble of
0: acts by unbelievers. Whereas a believer who makes that same decision to get up and go to work will do so for different motives. He may also be motivated in part by the fact that the decision will contribute to having a more pleasant marriage and family life. But there will also be a desire to obey and please God and to bring Him glory. And that motivation makes all
1: the difference in the world. It involves a radical change in focus from this world and this life to the kingdom of God and eternity. It is God-centered rather than man-centered. Even though both men, the unbeliever and the believer, made the same decision, namely to not give in to laziness, but to get up and go to work instead, the unbeliever sinned because of his motive. Whereas the believer's action, while not fully devoid of sin, was
0: nonetheless pleasing to God. And the Bible tells us clearly that before we're born again, we always obeyed our sinful desires. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3,
1: And that is the condition out of which God saved us. We were by nature objects of wrath. But if we have been born again, that is no longer true. We are now objects of mercy. And the process of sanctification is a simple matter of continuing to make godly decisions one after another, to say no to sin over and over again, to not let sin reign and to not obey its evil desires, as Paul wrote. He also wrote in Titus chapter 2 verses 12 through 14 that the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own Eager to do what is good.
0: And our battle against sin goes on as long as we're alive. And I must add that it gets very tiring sometimes.
1: Yes, it does get tiring. But God gives us grace. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, that, quote, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, unquote. We don't fight against sin, the devil, and the world in our own strength. If we do, we will surely fail. But if we recognize the reality of our position in union with Christ and the power that position grants to us, we can and will lead victorious Christian lives. The Bible provides us with a number of examples, both of saints who failed to be victorious over sin and of saints who were victorious.
0: And we need to use those examples to motivate ourselves. One of the most prominent examples I can think of for a child of God being victorious over sin is Joseph.
1: Yeah, he's a great example. For those who may not remember, he was one of the twelve patriarchs of the Jewish people, the favorite son of Jacob, who is also known as Israel. His brothers despised him and sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt in the service of Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's officials. But Joseph remained faithful to God and was granted success in all that he did. As a result, he rose to be in charge of all of Potiphar's household. But he was also presented with great temptation. Potiphar's wife tried very hard to seduce him, but he steadfastly refused.
0: Yeah, we're told in Genesis chapter 39 verse 9 that Joseph responded to Potiphar's wife's proposition with this statement. Quote, "No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God?" What
1: a great answer. And as I said, we should all learn from this example and resolve to meet temptation in the same way. We should be able to say, God has redeemed me and granted me many blessings. How can I be wicked and sin against God?
0: Oh, That we would all be able to be so holy at all times. Our lives would be much better. But unfortunately, the Bible also gives us many examples of God's chosen people falling in temptation.
1: Yes, it does, and there's always pain as a result. So we should take warning. Perhaps the greatest example is King David, Here was the greatest of all the Israelite kings. In speaking about him, the prophet Samuel said in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, that the Lord has sought out a man after His own heart and appointed him leader
0: of His people. What a wonderful thing to have God say about you—that you're a man after His own heart! It is a wonderful thing,
1: and God granted David amazing success. But then, later in life, he gave in to temptation in a horrible way. We see the beginning of this sad tale in Second Samuel chapter eleven, verse one, where we read quote, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David
0: remained in Jerusalem, and for those who may not know, Joab was the head of David's army.
1: That's right. But David was getting a bit old and was enjoying his great
0: luxury, so he gave in to the temptation to not go out with the army. And as a result, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, that, quote, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful.
1: And so we see Satan taking advantage of David's weakness and bringing this temptation. And David fell. He found out the woman was named Bathsheba, and that she was the wife of one of his faithful soldiers named Uriah, but he had her brought to him anyway, and he slept with her. Which was a monstrous mistake and a terrible sin in God's sight. Yes, it was. Bathsheba then became pregnant, and David eventually ordered that Uriah be placed in a position where he was certain to be killed in battle
0: in order to cover up David's crime. And so this king, who's described as a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and then murder to cover it
1: up. Yes, he did. And he and Bathsheba and his kingdom all paid a terrible price for it. The baby died, and Nathan the prophet was sent to David to tell him what would happen. We read in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7 and 10 through 12 that Nathan told David, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says... Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before
0: all Israel." And we know that all of these terrible things came true in the life of David. Even though he was God's child, he was severely disciplined
1: by the Lord. And we should all learn from Joseph, David, and the other examples in the Bible. As the Reverend P.G. Matthew said, holiness is the key to happiness.
0: We must strive to obey God all of life. That is good counsel for all of us, and this is a good place to end today. So let me remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at org. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the doctrine of sanctification, and we hope you'll join us. what does the word say.org